right, we're doing well? You're looking good this morning. All of you. Good looking church, aren't we? My goodness. <laughs> Great. Well, who's been enjoying our series on sexuality? Yeah, it's been um, challenging, I know, for many, uh, and, but really redemptive for so many as well hearing so many great stories of, of just people getting a whole different perspective on, on who God is and who we are as sexually embodied people. Um, and uh, so as, we, as I sort of was preparing for this series, I, I actually changed, after the first Sunday, I, I really felt that God was um, uh, giving me a picture of where he wanted us to uh, where he was bringing us to. And so I actually changed uh, sort of what I was um, preparing and I, I had in mind what I wanted to talk about this morning. And it's so, not so much about what I want to talk about this morning, but as much as what I feel like God wants to do this morning. And so we, we're going to, uh, uh, this morning, we're going to be opening up some space for, for ministry. Um, and so I really want to encourage us all just to have really open hearts with that. I, uh, we've got... Um, our team, and I've asked some uh, some people to get ready to pray and to minister to people, and uh, I just really feel like this morning shame is going to be broken off, because we cannot talk about sexuality without talking about shame. And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning, and then we're going to lead into that. So if we go full circle right back to the very first message I shared, I started out by talking about the fact that, um, that truth is not just objective. The Bible was full of objective truth, but in the person of Jesus, what was objective subjected himself to humanity's brokenness and actually embodied our humanity. See, truth is not just objective, it actually needs to be embodied. And if we are going to show the world what Jesus is like, we have to embody who he is. And so that's what I talked about uh, in the very first week. And you know, sometimes we might like to think about the Bible uh, in terms of like we need to apply the Bible, like we need to apply the Bible to our life. And we kind of just treat it like an instruction manual to be consulted on every now and then. And you know, when we need to know an answer to something or you know, when we have a, a question, we, we go to the Bible and we sort of apply it. But to actually embody something is to actually be changed by it. If we were to just apply the Bible, it's kind of like, I mean, have you ever, if someone's ever done painting, you apply paint. You just apply it on the outside of something and you might change its color on the outside. But, but we don't apply the Bible. We don't just apply it as a, as a veneer to the outside of our lives. The, the, the Bible or the word of God is supposed to be embodied. This is why Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. He was showing us that actually this truth has to be embodied. And so to embody something is actually to be changed by it to the very core of our being and to the very core of what it means to be the community of faith. So to embody scripture in our lives is in a very sense to incarnate it like Jesus incarnated himself into our broken story. It's to live it, to breathe it, to become who it says we are and then to turn away from who it says we are not. And so it's actually a lot easier to apply scripture than it is to embody it. 
but we are not called to apply scripture, we are called to embody it. And let's be honest, it's actually really easy to apply scripture to other people's lives. Hey. But if we're going to talk about what it means to be a redemptive community, we have to learn how to embody truth, not just apply it to other people's lives. And we take this thought about um, what it means to believe in Jesus. Um, we have lots of scriptures that talk about repenting and believing in Jesus. Um, but there, there's this one little word, this word in, that I think is often mistranslated. If you read it in a literal translation, you're actually going to get the word into. It's actually quite a big difference to just from believing in Jesus versus actually believing into Jesus. So scripture says that even the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble with fear. And my concern is that we have a lot of Christians who believe in Jesus and don't even tremble themselves. But actually we are supposed to believe into Jesus. This is an act of faith and trust in the person of Jesus to be the redeeming ruler of our lives. So to believe is to just acknowledge a fact objectively. Oh yeah, we believe in Jesus but to believe into is to actually receive his life. Um, a couple of weeks ago at the Young Adults um, All In, there was a question, and the question was this, why does sexual sin seem to be the worst sin? See, Paul uh, actually said that sexual sin is the only sin that's against our body. So we are not spiritual beings having a bodily experience. We are actually embodied souls. We are spiritually embodied people, a whole person. So what we do with our bodies actually affects us spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. See, sexual sin carries the most shame because it comes, actually comes into our bodies. We feel it. We are harmed by it. And unfortunately, whether we have inflicted it upon others or whether we have had it inflicted on us, the shame of it deeply affects us. See, because we are embodied souls, because we are spiritually embodied persons, we can often feel like we are what has been done to us. So I would like to suggest that our natural state as human beings is actually in the state of longing, that, that ever since the fall, humanity has longed for reunion with our creator, that, and that the Bible was this complete story about union lost in the garden and humanity's constant failure to find fulfillment in the self-governed life. And Jesus coming into and embodying the human experience, he came to reconcile us back into reunion with our creator. So this is why the psalmist, they write like this, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He says things like this, My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So this word soul in the Bible in the Hebrew is the word nephesh. Which, which in its most basic form literally means the throat. 
And so this idea of deep longing and, and this thirst to be quenched would, would be quenched in your throat. And so what the psalmists are doing is they're constantly connecting our bodies with our spirituality. They're saying when you long for God, it's like a physical thirst. You would feel it in your throat and to be, for that thirst to be quenched would be for it to be quenched in the throat. So there's these connections between who we are as physical people and who we are as spiritual people. They are not supposed to be divorced. Ronald Rollheiser in his book, Holy Longing, he describes it like this. He says, the point is to be, uh, to be human in the stage of the story that we're in is to be being beset with limitations and shortcomings. Whether it's hunger or thirst or loneliness, the need for relationships and intimacy, and the longing for these things is hardwired into who we are as human beings. And he talks about it as if we were like creatures who are constantly longing to fulfill or to transcend the boundaries of our existence. So in other words, whether it's to never be hungry or to never be tired or to never be bored, to never be lonely, that, that we are always trying to get these things met. And where he takes it is this. What it means to take each of these limitations and stop, and we need to stop seeing them as negatives, but see these limitations as pointers, as signposts, that we, we are longing for Him. That these longings that we have are pointers and signposts that we were made for union with our Creator, and we have been disconnected from Him, and we are yearning for Him. See, in Genesis 2 and 3, we read about Adam and Eve and, and the fall. And, and it says in, in uh, the end of Genesis 2, the last verse, it says that Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. They were naked and felt no shame. And then we see as the story progresses that they were deceived by the serpent with the original lie. And here's the original lie, that God is withholding from you. And they believed the lie and they seized autonomy from God. They had this idea that we know better and they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and it, it says then that they realized that they were naked, so they covered themselves with fig leaves. I don't know if you've ever read a, read a, a kid's storybook, but you always see this picture of Adam and Eve and they've got you know, little bikinis on. You know, Eve's got a bikini and Adam's got the little budgie smuggler fig thing, you know. <laughs> but it, it, this is the, the picture that we're getting, that they, they've covered themselves with, their, with these fig leaves. They've covered their shame. And it, and it says that, they, that God came looking for them in the garden. And, and so they actually fully hid. You read the story. They fully hid in the thing that they were trying to cover themselves with. See, they were full of shame. And then, then God finds them and he confronts them. And this is their response. They judged God, we're afraid of you. They judged themselves, we were ashamed. And then they judged others. Adam goes, it was her fault. Eve goes, well, it was the serpent's fault. See, shame becomes a lens through which we see the world. It shapes how we see God, it shapes how we see ourselves, and it shapes how we see others. See, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden isn't just a story just about creation, it's actually a story about you and me. 
It's a story about humanity, and it's supposed to set us up for how we read the rest of Scripture. And the point is this, that you get to, the, to Jesus talking about the prodigal son, and, the, the, and you see further on in Genesis 3 that actually God removes their fig leaves and actually clothes them uh, with, with uh, the skin of animals. And the point is this, is that when we come to God, God wants us naked so that he can clothe us. See, when, when you come to God, the only thing he requires of you is nothing. But we come in our shame and we bring all of the things that we think are protecting us, but in fact, they are disconnecting us. See, God is never robbing me of something good, never. He is not withholding from you. That's the original lie. He is never robbing me of something good. And when he says no to one of my desires, it's always because he has better because that's what love is. See, to believe into Jesus means not only trust Jesus, but it gives God permission to be the redemptive ruler of our life. And, and to follow Jesus is to follow him in obedient loyalty. And it means to trust that he is not just life, but that he is the way that, and that his ways are always good. See, I'm convinced, as we'll see with this next series, I'm convinced that we flourish as humans when we live under the redeeming rule and reign of Jesus. See, the kingdom of heaven, Paul says, is righteousness, peace, and joy. It's, it's right relatedness. It's right relatedness with God. It's right relatedness with people around us. And, and, and it's peace. It's unspeakable peace. It's, it's, this un, it's this peace that transcends our understanding, and it's joy. Unspeakable joy, as Peter put it. And, and who knows that happiness is a really poor substitute for joy. See, this is, this is the kingdom of heaven. And to, to live in opposition to this, as we see with Adam and Eve, is actually arrogant independence. I know better. We seize autonomy for God, from God, and in doing so, we participate in this deception of self. See, I've been meditating on Psalm 23 lately, and I was just, I was just walking around my lounge. Did anyone else pace when they pray? Like, I just paced my lounge, and I'm just, and I just started, to, I just found myself saying, saying, God, your care and your correction comfort me. Your care and your correction comfort me. They lead me in the path of everlasting. You know, Psalm 23, my, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. His care and his correction, if I truly believe that God is good, then I know that his correction is also for my good that he is always leading me in the path of everlasting. See, Paul says that when Adam and Eve sinned, that when they fell, that, that, that through that sin entered the world. And, and this word sin, I've been doing a word study on it recently, and, and, and most of the time that Paul uses it, it's, it's the word harmatia. Um, interestingly, he only uses sin as actions twice. And in the 72 times he uses it, he's only defined as actions twice. And the word harmatia is to not share in the life of God. See, sin is the choice to, to walk away from union with him. Our actions are always just the fruit of that. Our actions are our autonomy. Our actions are our self-deception, our, our way to get life on our own terms. And 
in this, we start to live out this perpetual life of shame. But listen to this, Jesus never trades in guilt or shame, and neither should we. See, the idea of guilt is this, it's the guilt is, is the sense that I did something wrong. Shame is the idea or the, the feeling that I am something wrong. Brene Brown, she said this, she said, shame is an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. See, shame is an emotion that affects us, all of us. Every single one of us will be able to identify with the feeling of shame, and it profoundly shapes how we interact with the world. Nothing will warp our identity more than shame. So when it comes to the ideas of abuse, sexual abuse, or sexual trauma, it affects us deeply because we are embodied souls. So it's the sense that something has happened to me that has caused such deep-rooted shame that I now feel like my only reprieve is to escape myself. And then we spend the rest of our lives running from ourselves, hiding from ourselves, hiding from others, and hiding from God. Because it's not the sense that we've done something wrong, but it's that we feel I am something wrong and we're trying to escape ourselves. And here is the beauty of the gospel. See, the gospel is the beautifully good news that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, you don't have to escape yourself because he is making all things new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Listen, Jesus is not trying to fix you. I mean, if we want to be really blunt, he's trying to kill you <laughs> and resurrect you into a new life. The point is this, is that Jesus isn't trying to fix up your old life. He wants to resurrect you into a new life. Yeah, God is not into necromancy. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, he's not trying to relate to your old life. It's dead. He's trying to relate to your new life and calling you up into your new identity, not calling you out on your past. See, believing that we are a new creation in Christ means purposely, purposely living into that story and our new identity. It's, it's turning from our old ways of thinking towards faith in Jesus and his Story as, And as we do that, we are no longer being formed by our old story, but transformed into his image and likeness and the original identity and purpose for our lives. If this is not behavior modif modification or willpower. This is living by the Spirit. See, morality plus willpower does not equal holiness. Romans 8 says that the Son stands first in line of a humanity he restored, we see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> see, while the first Adam, he hid in his shame of his nakedness, the second Adam, Jesus, have you ever noticed that he was stripped three times naked? 
He was crucified naked, exposed and vulnerable for all to see, to mock and ridicule him. And, and in him, all of our shame and guilt and pain was carried to its death. He took it to its death. And only in him are our stories of brokenness, pain and shame. And it had been restored and made whole. See, as we share in his death, we share in his resurrection. We've been restored back to the family of God. But unfortunately, our churchianity can create cultures of shame. I've got a couple of slides that I want to show you. Um, can we chuck up the first one there? That'd be great. So you might have heard some ideas like this. Some people say, oh, the church just needs to be hard on sin. We just need to be hard on sin. See, this culture creates this, it creates hiddenness, secrecy, abuse of power, it creates shame, fear, condemnation, it, it creates guilt and control, it, it, it creates a culture of behavior, management, and scapegoating, closed hearts, grasping, and pride. Now, what I'm not gonna contrast this with is the idea of we just need to be soft on sin because that's what people are normally reacting to. But I wanna pick up on one, and it's this idea of scapegoating. See, uh, uh, we need scapegoats when we have shame. When you feel shame, you always look for a scapegoat. A scapegoat is someone that you deem to be less worthy than you someone who sins worse than you so you can make yourself feel better about yourself. There's whole community groups that the church has scapegoated in the past. What, what actually scapegoating creates and while it feels good for a church to scapegoat community groups and other groups around us is because it actually creates false unity. We become united by who we are not. See, the older brother in the prodigal son's story, he identified himself as, I am not like the younger brother. His whole identity was built on who he was not, and his younger brother was a scapegoat. When the father restores the younger brother, he actually pulls the, it's like he's pulled the, the mat right out from the older brother, because everything that he identified himself against, the father has restored in the younger brother. And now the older brother is left going, well, if I, am, if I can't identify myself against him, then who am I? See, it creates false unity because instead of being united in who we have become, we become united in who we are not. In the outback of Australia, uh, where they have uh, large, large farms with cattle, um, they don't build fences to keep the cattle in. They just dig wells because they know the cattle will never go far from the water. So I believe the church is supposed to be a deep well, a deep wellspring of life. We don't need to be people who build fences. We need to be people who dig deep wells. So let's contrast that with the other slide. The other slide is this, that we actually just need to be honest about sin. We need to be honest about our sin. We need to be honest about who we are. We need to be honest about our own sin. 
And when we are honest, we create a culture of vulnerability, freedom, forgiveness, redemption, love, belonging, light, accountability, and belief management versus behavior management. And we have open hands and open hearts towards one another. And guess what? We look like humility. We need to be honest about sin. All right, I want to give you an illustration, and then we're going to uh, close. So if I need some uh, people to help me, um, if we could have Annette come, and who else do I ask? Haynes, and I need someone that looks like Jesus. Um, let me see. I was going to ask Diego, but he's not here. <laughs> oh, he's in the parents' room. Anthony, you look like Jesus. Come on up. Cool. All right, I need you guys to hold hands if you're comfortable with that. So, uh, so we've got the Godhead here in a circle. Yep, in a circle. So this is the Godhead. So we've got, uh, we've got Jesus, the Father, and, and it is the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and this is the Godhead. And so I, I want to give you an example of uh, maybe someone who... who uh, isn't in relationship with God, so someone, you know, maybe an atheist, maybe someone who, uh, you know, maybe just agnostic, whatever. And, and there's been some people praying for me, and so uh, as they pray for me, uh, God is responding to that prayer, and he's drawing me to him. And, uh, and maybe against my better judgment, I start to engage with God a little bit, and, and I meet God, and someone tells me the gospel, and, and I feel the sense that I want to respond to the gospel. And so I ask Jesus to forgive my sin and so that I can have a relationship with him. Now, um, what is my relationship to the Godhead is the question that I want to talk about. What is my relationship to the Godhead? Now, most Christians, uh, there was actually a survey done on this, and about 81% of Christians in America anyway believe that this is what my relationship to uh, the Godhead is, is that I am connected through Jesus. And my relationship with God is a conditional relationship based on my behavior. And so I come, and I'm a young Christian, and so I'm learning what it means to follow Jesus, and uh, and so I, I muck up, I do things, I, I, I fall away, I, I do things that I maybe know that I shouldn't, and I feel like every time I do that, I'm disconnected from God. And so I'm, and I'm feeling disconnected, and so um, unfortunately for me, I came to church, and they told me that the only way to be connected to God is to do more. So I need to fast more, pray more, uh, you know, if you're a really good church, they'll tell you to give more, uh, and whatever, so that you can restore relationship with, with God again through Jesus. And so it's the sense that we, are, we have a conditional relationship with God through behavior management. And so we're connected and disconnected. What the Bible actually says, if you guys want to spread out a little bit, so no, no, keep your hands connected. The God here can't disconnect, that's right, yeah. Um, so what the Bible actually says is that I'm adopted into a family. 
And so I, now I find myself in the family of God and I'm not disconnected through my behavior. And actually what God is wanting to do is not call me out on my sin, but call me up into my identity. And I'm surrounded in love and I don't feel disconnected when I do wrong, but I feel loved, which is actually loving me into my identity. And so what happens here is that I'm actually learning to manage my belief system because behavior is always the echo of belief. And so where we actually believe that we are in the family of God actually affects how we live. See, this is union with God. I'm connected with God and I'm found in love with Him. I'm not disconnected, I'm in union. This is the relationship with God that the Bible actually talks about. Isn't that beautiful? Thanks, Godhead, you've done a wonderful job. See, it's only in that place of divine love that actually our shame is removed. Where we feel like we aren't actually having to behave for God's love. See, one position when we're over here, we feel like we are working towards acceptance, towards belonging, towards love. But when we find ourselves in union with God, we're actually living from acceptance, living from belonging, living from love. Now, I've had some people say, Michael, you can't tell people that. They'll just want to do as much sin as possible. Uh, listen, what, when you find yourself in, in that relationship with God, you are not looking for ways to sin and get away with it. You, you are looking for ways to, to represent him well because, because he has changed our hearts from the inside out. Righteousness is actually the right, it's a res restoration of who we are from the inside out. And so for someone to say you can't tell them that is actually not to trust the gospel. I'm not trying to control people into heaven. I'm trying to tell people about where they're positioned so that they can represent Jesus well. So we need to define ourselves as one radically loved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. See, in Colossians 3, Paul said that we are no longer hiding from God, but we are hidden in God. I love The Chosen, the series The Chosen, and I love this, this one part where Mary and Matthew, Matthew are standing there, and Mary turns to Matthew, and, and she says, you know, I don't think he's waiting for us to be holy. I think he's here because we can't be holy without him. If we can chuck up the next slide, that'd be great. We're, we're gonna, um, music team can come as well. That'd be great, thanks. So listen, God, God is not calling us to be holy so we can be near to him. God is calling us into himself because we can't be holy without him. See, holiness doesn't equal union. Union equals holiness. So we can flick up the next slide. And holiness doesn't mean perfect behavior. Holiness is wholeness. Wholeness is the restoration of how we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we see others. He is making all things new. 
So when it comes to the place of shame in our life, if we create cultures of scapegoating, cultures where we want to call people out on their sin rather than call people up into their identity, we actually do the reverse. We actually push people further into hiding. Because we've been taught that our union with God is based on our behavior. But I want to tell you this, that your behavior does not change how the Father feels about you. Ellie had this incredible revelation of, of the father and, and she's told her story a few times but she she said that her view of God was that she was hiding behind Jesus because she was scared of the father but now she said to me the other day that whenever she thinks of God thinks of the father she sees herself sitting on his knee See, we can spend our whole lives feeling like Jesus is protecting us from the Father. But actually, we're invited into loving union with a Father who loves us. With the Holy Spirit who empowers us. With Jesus who is a friend to all. And this is where we are. This is who you are. And that is who he is. So this morning as we sing, we're going to sing it as, there's a song we're, we're singing this morning, it's new, but it's called Run to the Father. And I want you to just listen to the lyrics of the song. We're going to gather around communion first, but we're going to create some space up the front this morning, because I really believe that there is going to be a moment for so many this morning where the revelation of the Father is going to sink so deep into your heart. It's gonna change the way that you see. Do you remember the other week I did that illustration with Savannah where I took the glasses off? See, God wants to change the way you see because we always walk in the direction that we see. Wherever our eyes are, that's the way we walk. And if we're trying to change our lives without first changing the lens, that's religion. The Father wants us to know him intimately. He is a good Father. Everything about our sexual being tells us that we are created for intimacy with him. So we're gonna sing, and I invite you to come. We're gonna create space for it. And I encourage you, don't miss this moment. Don't let shame rob you of the very thing that you need, because that's what shame does. Shame always keeps us from the thing that we need the most. Don't let shame rob you this morning. Thanks, Dan.